Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, seafarers, mariners, and amphibians from beyond. You are listening to the Je Nicole pod series. The opinions presented in this series do not represent the official position of any government, organization, or entity. Welcome back to Jean Nicole, everyone. Today I have the privilege to be joined by Pooja Bhatt. Pooja received her PhD from the School of International Studies at JNU in New Delhi, and she previously worked at the Centre for Air Power Studies, New Delhi. She's also the author of Nine Dash Line, Deciphering the South China Sea Conundrum. Welcome to the show, Pooja. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Lucy, and thank you for having me for the podcast. I'm really happy to be here with you all. We actually did a poll, and a lot of our listeners are really interested in hearing from maritime security issues across the whole globe. And India is a massive naval power as well, so it makes sense. So just to start off, I guess I wanted to uh, have a discussion about your book we just mentioned, The Nine Dash Line, Deciphering the South China Sea Conundrum. The book explores China's actions in the South China Sea since the UNCLOS Arbitration Tribunal ruling, which was in favour of the Philippines in 2016. And it seeks to understand China's militarisation of the area. Would you be able to give us a quick synopsis of your main observations from your research you discuss in your book? Yeah, thank you. And uh, so the book started somewhere. I started the research somewhere in November of 2016, and it was already four or five months since the judgment that has come in uh, July 2016. And what striked me mostly was there was not much Indian perspective on how the entire issue of South China has been seen. Because India has been present in South China Sea, albeit there was a very small presence in South China Sea in terms of you know having its economic resources as well as uh, doing some certain kind of military passages uh, that Indian naval ships has been doing since 1960s. So I thought uh, there was a lack of that kind of understanding, and and I also wanted to see how um, South China Sea just not only figures as a military uh, and strategic area. But also it has a larger meaning, what a larger context uh, for Indian uh, security dynamics. So what I try to do is to understand uh, South China Sea, not only from the military and strategic angles, but also uh, from economics, from environmental point of view, from regional countries point of view, to make a wholesome picture of exactly what South China Sea means for China and how Chinese strategies are, are actually uh, you know, going ahead in each of these areas. So uh, my book has broken down uh, of these elements into separate chapters and in each of the chapter, I have what I've observed that there has been actually a, a greater Chinese strategy towards, you know, uh, how they want to acquire South China Sea resources and how they want to use it as its backyard. And it's just not the military angle uh, that has to be seen, but there is a wholesome approach that Chinese guy, uh, grand strategy has towards South China Sea. And each of the chapter actually ended up understanding uh, the same and uh, there was a similar uh, outcome in this each chapter that there are various angles to, as of how China has been approaching South China Sea. So that was the entire idea. And uh, the second part of it, I tried to understand that it's just it's it's a it's a part of global commons. So why rest of the con- countries who are stakeholders in that region are 
how and why they should be behaving in a certain way. And I think over the past few recent years, we have been seeing countries have been trying to show up their presence. Right now, it's more of the military thing. But I think uh, more and more countries are being vocal about how South China Sea is a global common set, including India, if I say. Uh, till recently, India never made a very solid uh, overt statement about how, what it sees uh, South China Sea as. But last year, it made a MEA, Ministry of External Affairs, made a very clear vocal statement that South China Sea is a part of global commons. I think this is the kind of statement that should be coming out of more and more countries who see themselves as stakeholders. So this, this was the two part of my book. And this is what I tried to bring out in my book as well. Yeah, in Australia, we're in a similar similar position as well, because it was only a couple of years ago that Australia made an official statement by submitting a note verbal to the UN saying we don't recognise China's claims in the South China Sea. And so you said you hope that more countries become more vocal about it. Do you think that will help China be held to account? What do you think that will achieve by doing that? Um, okay, I see it this way. Um what China is trying to do, we all know, is unilateral. And there is this um, overconfidence in the country that because it is the largest trading partner of most of the countries and uh, countries will not make certain you know, vocal statements against it. But whereas what is happening now, nowadays, there's a growing understanding within countries that despite everything else, there is a crucial issue that is going in South China Sea. And they are becoming more vocal about it, whether they are regional countries, whether they are extra regional countries. So I think that kind of concerted voice that is coming up uh, in terms of South China Sea and more and more countries being involved in it, I think that has to have certain kind of deterrent effect on Chinese activities in the region. It cannot go on forever with its activities, thinking that nobody will you know, respond to it. And I guess another thing to think about is multiple ASEAN nations actually disagree with each other on their EZ. So, for example, if we're talking about Indonesia and Vietnam as one example. So perhaps uh, you suggest that if they are able to reach some sort of consensus uh, on their own boundaries between each other, do you think that would help then if they put forward a united front towards China or they're completely separate issues in your mind? I think I think they are what they are trying to do is keeping their bilateral issues at a different level. They are having their boundary issues, but when it comes to ASEAN level, I think each year after year they are producing uh, these you know joint communiques and statements, ASEAN statements that are coming out, and there has there is this continuous. Uh, effort in showing that they all are united when it comes to South China Sea. The difference that comes each year is depending upon who is the chair. So if you uh, if you read through the past 10 years of uh, ASEAN communiques, every time it was Philippines or uh, Vietnam uh, as a chair of ASEAN, we had seen more solid, more vocal uh, ASEAN statements towards South China Sea. However, when with the countries like Cambodia and Brunei as the chair, the statements were a little mellowed down. Uh, good and bad, good is uh, that every year they are making South China Sea as an issue and in uh, trying to you know bring out the safety and security and peaceful uh, measures as a common bottom line in every statement. Bad is that it depends upon the chair, who's the chair and how what kind of relationship they, cha- uh, they share with China. Based upon that, the language of the statement will come out. So despite having you know bilateral issues amongst themselves re- regarding the maritime uh, delimitation when it comes to at the uh, multilateral level the regional level i think they are showing a concerted effect and that's i think appreciable 
Okay. And um, you mentioned before that India has been transiting through the South China Sea since I think you said the 60s. -hmm. For those of our listeners who aren't really familiar with Indian naval operations, you've got to talk us through what that has looked like. Has it just been port visits or, yeah, would you be able to take us through that? Yeah, it has been mostly the port visits and um, Indian naval ships were actually, they have been really smaller and they're not frig- not, not frigates and all, but uh, normal ships that they have naval uh, platforms that they have been having. And those uh, vessels have been making these port visits in 1960s. That was the earliest knowledge that I got to know from the Indian uh, naval uh, officers that who were there uh, in the, during those times. And they told me that despite having smaller ships as a part of our you know larger uh, connectivity to the eastern partners we used to have our ships going for port visits and just going you know meeting them every few months depending upon what kind of ship they have how long it can travel because our understandably our naval capacities were not that much as we see right now so whatever capacities they had they used to make sure that they are visiting there and uh, several times they used to come across you know chinese military chinese navy giving them you know asking them what they're doing there what is them to be uh, present there and they used to have this call you know that um, we are here for the port visit we are in the naval ship and whatever the diplomatic and military language they used to and uh, every time they used to pass through but what happened was since 2017 it became difficult. Indian, uh, India and Vietnam has uh, these two blocks in Vietnam where we are doing joint exploration processes uh, of oil. And, uh, and it happens to be Indian uh, Vietnamese EEZ. What happened was in 2017, sometime in July, Chinese vessels actually came up to them and they gave them, you know, and we, India was given a uh, notice that we should not be continuing with the uh, joint exploration. Uh, similarly, uh, later in sometime in November 2017, uh, one of the Indian naval ships, INS Airavat, if I'm correct with the name, uh, amphibious ship that visited uh, Vietnam as normal port visit that he used to do, and they also got a uh, you know diplomatic signaling from their uh, military that they should not be visiting. I think these kind of events started happening sometime since 26. 16, 17 and onwards that there has been a drastic change in how Indian Navy was seen there in the South China Sea waters. So, uh, and uh, even our port visits still were there before, maybe more, it became more pronounced after 2016 and these ev- events like these. And so we often, we have the 2016 um, arbitration outcome and then we also have uh, India's Act East policy as well. Now, has that seen an increase, COVID aside, obviously, the recent few years, but has that seen an increase in either the desire or the actual deployment of more Indian vessels towards the east? Uh, yes, that is correct. Uh, India has been having this activist policy since early 90s. However, uh, with the coming of new government in India under President, uh, Prime Minister Modi, uh, we have been ha- we have been shifted Loki's policy to actist policy, and which is more about having more interaction in person interaction, and maritime diplomacy has been a part of it. So there have been increased uh, 
you know, naval visits, there have been increased joint exercises. And, uh, and now you have seen there is a Brahmos sale. So arms sales is a part of it, defense uh, equipment sales and training part of it is a part of it. So uh, I think the uh, activist has been a, a, a foundation on which India has been working. And military is one of the pillars, military engagements, where India has been having more and more presence in uh, Southeast Asian countries and furthermore. That is a part of it. And when we look in the news these days, looking at a lot of naval deployments in the South China Sea, we see a lot of regional navies like Australia, America, even recently the Royal Navy with the Queen Elizabeth Carrier Strike Group deploying um, and the Japanese Maritime Self-Defence Force deploying in multilateral or bilateral task groups in the South China Sea. Do you think that's something India will participate in in the future or not? And why do you think so? I think India has been participating uh, in it for a long time. And recently we had one more uh, exercise that was uh, that happened in South China Sea uh, and, and India was a party to it. So I think there are increased interactions between all these countries, uh, not only in the Indian Ocean region, but I think it is expanding towards South China Sea and uh, where, where India is a part. I'm not saying that they have not been in the South China Sea, but increasingly India is being a part on, in all those exercises happening beyond the immediate primary area. Uh, that India sees. So for India, uh, the primary area of interest remains Indian Ocean, which is the uh, west co- east coast of Africa to west coast of you know Southeast Asia. But now we are increasingly understanding that both of these sides are basically full of choke points, and uh, all our oils and you know uh, energy resources are passing through it. So it's very uh, crucial for India to secure its uh, sea lines of communication. And it is just not on India's um, entire capabilities at the moment, which it is developing, that to take care of these sea lines of communication and safety and security shipping lines. So I think uh, what what we are seeing is increased uh, realization of this aspect within Indian uh, military establishment. And also, uh, there is increased uh, cooperation with the regional like-minded partners who are seeking to do the same, but they understand there are limitations to their individual capacities. And that, therefore, it's only uh, best in interest for all to join hands and do the same. Uh, it is in these uh, you know, thought processes, these, these lines of thought processes that they are coming together, pooling up their resources and doing all these exercises uh, together. So India is being increasingly a part of all these exercises. And having a look, you know, speaking of India militarily, we know that there's um, on one side you have Pakistan, on the other side, we have China and particularly the Sino-Indian border. There's often disputes along there. Now, sometimes when you read the Defence News account on Twitter and, um, you know, Jane's Online, it talks about increasing Chinese survey vessels or uh, oceanographic vessels coming into the Indian Ocean region. How do you foresee that playing out? Do you think that will uh, be a place where more, more increasing tension will occur between China and India militarily? Absolutely. Uh, so for India, from Indian perspective, our, we were not a very maritime focused country for a long time because our you know, territorial borders were, as you rightly mentioned, were always in conflict. So we were either looking at Pakistan or looking at China from the uh, northern side of it. But increasingly, we have realized there are, in, uh, there are Chinese vessels in terms of not just the uh, survey vessels and uh, research vessels, which are being uh, 
frequently noticed and observed by Indian uh, military, Indian naval of uh, navy. Uh, but also there have been uh, militia that has been seen. Last uh, two years back, we have had a huge bunch of fishing militia that was just outside the EZ of India in its um, western border. So I think these are the incidents which have been largely noticed. Some of them are actually uh, put out uh, in public and um, a lot of them are not even mentioned outside for the security reasons. But there is an understanding that we have been ignoring our you know, maritime borders for the long, longest time and we are seeing Chinese presence in our uh, waters. Maybe it's for fishing, maybe it's for survey, maybe it's for uh, uh, any military, uh, showing military friendship. So it's some kind of help to Pakistan as well, uh, who ha that happens to be our uh, adversary and uh, Pakistan does not have a strong military. So I think that is one other angle where China is trying to help out Pakistan, giving them submarines, giving them you know other maritime equipments uh, to strengthen them and you know make India's position a little difficult in their, uh, at least in the western borders. So I think these are the you know mixture of events that is happening in the recent years, and that has made India very very aware of its maritime deficiencies, I guess. And uh, Indian Navy has been working really hard to overcome those. Yeah, it has been. You can really appreciate how it has been difficult for India with you know Pakistan on one side, and then you know China on the other. But then you also have the entire water space around on the subcontinent as well. And you mentioned earlier that. India is developing, so they're not just they don't just have these Soviet era uh, platforms. It kind of seems like after the Cold War thawed, India adopted a more kind of multi-dimensional foreign policy. However, a large percentage of their military equipment still comes from Russia or is retrofitted Soviet Union kit, as you just mentioned. So, if I think of the the Indian Navy off the top of my head, I'm thinking of the Kilo class, which I think you call the Sindhu Ghosh class um, locally, the Kiev class carrier, which is forgive my pronunciation, the Vikramaditya, I think that's what it's called, uh, and the Rajput class, Tawa class, et cetera, et cetera. Can you describe how India's relationship with Russia has evolved over the years, particularly with respect to military engagement and procurement? That's a great question. So we need to understand a bit of context why India has such a huge um, Russian equipment in uh, military so uh, it all started in 1970s when, when, you know, we were having a lot of wars and, you know, disputes, 1960s and 70s when we were having disputes with our, both China and uh, Pakistan borders. And uh, that was a time we needed a lot of equipments. Our domestic capabilities were not enough to, you know, supply those kind of uh, equipments. So we were trying to purchase. And at the same time, in 1970s, uh, we conducted the nuclear test. We were given the sanctions by U.S. supplier of uh, that was remaining for India was to turn towards Russia. And Russia is known for its military equipments since that time. And Russia was willing to help. And we had Indo-Soviet uh, friendship treaty happening uh, during the same time. So uh, militaries uh, and defense equipments became uh, part of major sales to India. And India started procuring uh, in, from Russia. So all, uh, all across our military, whether it's Army, Air Forces, Navy, most of the equipments that have been used, we have been using are all Russian origin. However, over the years, those uh, equipments were leased, so they were sent out back, or they needed refits. So they, you know, continuously spares have to be called in, and they have, these platforms have grown old. So now, and the times also also change. So what now? Despite India having that kind of relationship with Russia in terms of you know uh, 
purchasing military equipments and you know spares and everything india over the years has di- now diversified its uh, purchases defense purchases so now we have france coming up now we have us and israel and so many other countries who who are selling equipments for india as well as we have also something called make in india where under which we are trying to increase our domestic production and defense production is one part of it so i think in within that uh, entire domain of you know how we are trying to build up our military capabilities uh, one solid example of india russia relationship comes in the porous recent uh, if you've heard about brahmos missiles that india has been developing with the uh, russia since early 2000s and we have reached this capability you know where we can now uh, now the we have india is party to mtcr missile technology control regime so now india can also uh, you know sell these equipments so now india and russia have come to that level that india from being a purchaser you know buyer of equipments india is trying to jointly develop those equipments so now india and russia are equal party partners in the brahmos deals where india holds 51% of the uh, brahmos uh, you know production and uh, 49% held by us uh, well, sorry russia and now the both of the countries have come together for the sales of these equipment and recently we have just order, uh, you know signed this uh, brahmos deal with the philippines so and now vietnam is looking at us for it indonesia is looking for the for brahmos missile and also some of the you know uh, middle east countries uh, are also looking for uh, brahmos missile so i think we have come a long way from you know being dependent on purchases to now being uh, seller of uh, military equipments but india russia her relationship has remained a part of it maybe not la- a big part of it but there is a certain element of you know uh, continued cooperation on military and defense issues yeah and i think in the na- naval space as well obviously brahmos missiles on um principal surface combatants in the indian navy but um i did read an article on jane's online the other day about uh india developing the aryahant class but, um nuclear ballistic missile submarine which is also the first nuclear submarine that's been designed and built in India so that's a really impressive achievement i think um so speaking of nuclear let's start talking nuclear the arms control administration estimated that india holds 156 nuclear warheads which is more than the estimates for north korea at 40 to 50 or at israel at 90 but far less than the estimates for the usa at 5 and a half thousand and russia at over 6000 now, India has long stated it has a no-first-use policy when it comes to nuclear weapons, but there is considerable news reports on increased projects for the development of Indian nuclear weapons, such as the Agni, and watering down of the language surrounding no-first-use. Uh, what is your view on these developments within India? Okay, great question. So, first of all, coming to numbers. So, these are numbers which are basically estimated everywhere. So, even for us, it is the same estimates that come. But what we have to recognize in this is this is this this includes the entire number of nuclear weapons that India would have. So, it which includes the old and aging weapons which India might not have phased out, and they are also being calculated. So, maybe they might not be used. They are redundant at the moment. But we actually calculate them in the numbers. So a large number of scholars who talk about Indian nuclear, uh, you know, missile numbers, oh, sorry, uh, uh, warhead numbers growing, uh, consider that the old and redundant uh, nuclear warheads are also being considered in the same. And I think that's the reason the number is showing that high. Uh, in all probability, I don't think. Uh, 
all are under the you know spectrum of being used um, a large percentage would be used maybe there is a good amount of percentage which which is not in the usable category so i think the numbers would not much matter here coming to the india's uh, no first use policy that uh, india has maintained since the very starting that nfu will remain the center point of its you know policies and india will not go with the first strike capability i think that is the indian culture of seeing nuclear weapons as a deterrent and not as a weapon of destruction you know so i think that strategic culture has been built into our uh, nuclear doctrine as well I, and i think despite having two nuclear powers on our you know as our neighbors that language has not changed it has watered down according to the situations and the geopolitical situations that have demanded that kind of you know uh, bringing that kind of ambiguity in the doctrine but i think in the large spectrum of things uh, and most of the analysts come, at least believe and you know we all come together to understand that having an nfu is way better than ha having a first use policy because it will only increase the chances of you know uh, more accidents and more you know nuclear miscalculations and which we do not want and uh, in terms of yes uh, building up our second uh, strike cap capability third strike capability india is working towards it because we understand that we this was one of the fields where we were lacking and having certain kind of nuclear uh, capable missile uh, uh, submarines and uh, will only increase india india's second strike capability so that is the kind of entire uh, spectrum of you know nuclear capability that we are uh, trying to develop so it all falls in line that we we do not seek uh to use the nuclear weapons as the you know as the first uh, chance chance but we are always prepared to give it give it back with the second strike capability so i think that is a kind of entire mindset that indian strategic culture has and all of the developments that are happening uh, should be seen from that point of view i know that uh, i think it was about a year or 18 months ago a diplomat within the prc stated, yeah, we have a no first use policy, but if the US intervened in an invasion with Taiwan, then that would be the exception. Do you, do you foresee in the future any red lines like that being considered for India? Yes, we'll have a no first use policy, but if this red line is crossed, then we may reconsider or you think it will stick to that NFU policy? I think uh, uh, it has been already mentioned in our doctrine that if there is an attack on, you know, nuclear attack on India, or uh, maybe on some of some of its um, uh, resources, in, whether in India abroad or it's you know personal in India, India and abroad, if that kind of danger happens, India might consider, you know. But I think these are the red lines that that are needed to be spelled out and these are needed to be given. You might not still go for a first use policy ever, but I think. Just as you mentioned, you know, China mentioned if Taiwan is attacked, so in, in the similar lines, India has these red lines, uh, you know, given out in its earlier declarations as well. And so you also worked at the Center for Air Power Studies in Delhi. And it just makes me reflect on all three services. We're focused mainly on the Navy here. Obviously, in some countries, um, like in Australia, <laughs> where we're an island nation and now that we've withdrawn from the Middle East, um, we still obviously need a, a, an army, but I guess it's more real and more acute for India because your army sees conflict regularly. But 
Out of the three services, is there a competition for funding resources and modernization in India? Absolutely. And that has been one of the uh, thorny issues within the Indian military, that fight for the resources because our defense budget is very small. And each year, and now with the pandemic coming up, uh, so the resources are getting affected. Indian Army being the largest of all the three forces, and also because of the reasons has to cover up the entire, you know, difficult borders that we share with our neighbors. Indian Army does definitely get the largest section of the budgets. Uh, then next come to, we have Air Force that comes and the Navy is the third one. Uh, that is Now in the uh, last few years, Navy has started getting more funding because of the capital development we are doing in terms of uh, submarine building and also the new ships that we are trying to uh, uh, build up and commission. So I think the, there has been some reorganization of the budgets, but there is acute competition between all the three forces in terms of you know, defense budget that they are seeking. Um, they do not get the desired uh, capital that they seek each year and year. But whatever they use is, uh, that way, if I see a Navy has been the uh, one in the recent years that has been you know, doing the best out of whatever budget they are getting, Indian Army and Navy are still, uh, Indian Army and Air Force are still very import dependent uh, forces. Uh, on the other hand, as I'm talking about Navy, Navy started to at least use, uh, try to build up its own resources and a lot of indigenous production has been going on. So that is the kind of how they're using their capital in terms of their development that they are doing. I feel like um, this, we're almost running out of time here, but we're probably going to need to get you back on the show because we're going for a bit of a whirlwind tour and some of these issues really have a lot of meat to them. Um, but we're now at the final component of the episode. So our uniform and defence industry listeners are familiar with the term Soldiers 5, which is a succinct briefing style used in the Army. But here at Jeune Nicole, we're navalists and amphibians, so we're going to live up to the translation of our name, the Young School, and do something a little juvenile but intellectually challenging. And if you're joining us for the first time, this will be new, but if you tuned in on last season, then you know it's time for the Sailors 3. So all of our podcasts end on this maritime alternative to the Soldiers 5. So we're now going to ask Pooja three questions that she has to answer. So the first one is, what is your favourite or what you consider the most remarkable in-service military platform in the world from any service? Ah, that has to be a submarine. Awesome. Which one? For various reasons. I'll explain you the reason. So despite the fact that it's one of the most uh, difficult technologies in terms of not just science, but also it requires a lot of environmental factors to, you know, operate in the difficult waters, unknown waters, stay submerged for days. It has a deadly reach in terms of, you know, the area it can cover. It remains undetectable for months altogether if it's a nuclear, nuclear submarine and even conventional submarine for several weeks altogether. I like the, and, the, and there is this, uh, element of uh, deterrence that it brings because it remains undetected for months altogether. It is like finding a needle in a haystack. So it becomes such an exciting platform for me whenever I read about it and uh, the and stay hidden for months altogether. It develops that kind of, you know, it is such a potent weapon. If you read the most of the history, uh, more uh, ships have been lost, most tonnage wise have been lost by the attack of a submarine than you know any any other vessel so you know the element of potency element of 
uh, being undetected, being remaining undetected for months altogether is one part of it, which makes submarines very interesting to read. Uh, so many movies also show the same thing, so they are very interesting. Uh, apart from that, uh, there has another angle of human-machine interaction, if you see. So there are a group of people living in those difficult conditions for months altogether, and how it alters their relationship with you know the warfare and how they they. Uh, their relationship with each other and remaining, uh, you know, working together in those very testing environment. I think these are the two sides of it uh, that makes tire everything about submarine very exciting to me. And so, I guess my next question is, um, and this isn't part of the sales story. This is a follow up question. I'm allowed to do that because I'm the host. Have you seen the Hollywood movie? I think it's been it was released within the last two years. Uh, Greyhound, starring Tom Hanks. Yes. Yes, about the Battle of the Atlantic. That I think perfectly quantifies what you're describing about the human-machine interaction and the absolute terror of submarine warfare. Our second question is, um, in your view, Puja, what is the most interesting emerging technology that's uh, being developed at the moment? And it can be at any stage of development, so if it's still very much like the Battlestar Galactica, we'll definitely allow that. So what's your answer? No, I, I think overall, if I see uh, there are two technologies I find quite interesting with, as emerging is one is emergence of hypersonic uh, technology in terms of missiles, in terms of vehicles. That is a difficult technology to for any country to achieve and requires so much of you know testing and trying and failures and you know the kind of uh, technology that goes into it. So hyper apart from hypersonic, another technology which which attracts me uh, for the study is the drone technology and uh, drones are something again which are uh, changing the entire scenario of the warfare how we used to see warfare as a soldier uh, and now how drones has changed the entire paradigm of war fighting and not just the uh, um, the skies but the you know the seas and the underwaters i think all these the technology of U, U, uavs are changing the entire paradigm of warfare and i think that's why these are very interesting emerging technologies uh, that need to be focused in the coming years awesome i agree all right our final question is the wild card so you can pick one of the following options you can make either a prediction for the future of military op operations or technologies or you can uh, recommend a book for all emerging maritime leaders to read. Or the final option is a tip for emerging maritime leaders. So are you going to make a prediction, recommend a book, or provide a tip? Oh, no, I am. I, I think I should have stay away from a military tip. <laughs> That's not my domain. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I just take I think I'll just take the first one and I as we're talking about the future of warfare um, I think the future is definitely very much remo remotely operated UAVs uh, culture so it's from drone now we which is which has still has a human element to it and we still there human attached to the technology. The move, from there we're moving towards completely AI operated drones and UAVs and I think that's the scary part of the war fighting because we all know the side effects of you know ai and their limits and maybe beyond which we don't we don't know um i think future of warfare is looking very dangerous uh because there is no human there might not be any human touch to the warfare anymore and i think it would be machines that would be determining a certain kind of uh you know decision making and 
uh, the warfare and it's 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 not a very positive sign to see no it seems um low frequency very high cost so countries don't want to go to war as readily because of such a high cost in the future potentially all right awesome well thank you very much for coming on the show puja your insight was really really valuable and i'm sure our listeners will be really pleased and interested in hearing what you have to say and i definitely think we're going to have to get you back on the show again and thanks for coming thank you so much for having me and i look forward to seeing you again very soon thank you for listening to je nicole pod stay in contact with us via je nicole underscore pod on twitter or www.jeanicole.com